I've been mixing up this whole this whole podcast. Uh, Welcome to Keyframes in Betweens, a mini podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton, and with me today is Duncan. Hey there. As promised, we are talking about uh, the Review Starlight movie and uh, Review Starlight in general as a franchise, I guess. I hate using that word for something so it artistic. It is explicitly a multimedia franchise. They, they, they yeah. created it to be so, and like it has succeeded in its own little way. For, at some point, we should do an experimental thing where we watch the live-action version, just 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 for the hell of it. I've been burned by so many live-action <laughs> versions of anime stuff. I don't want to slight the talent of of the directors and actors who do Japanese live-action stuff, but I like Blue Blazes, and I like a couple of uh, ones that have made it onto Netflix. And otherwise, like the the idioms of of Japanese television and movie acting really don't don't I land with me always. I will have to check. I will I will cut this bit out if I'm wrong, but I think they <laughs> use the same uh, voice actresses for the uh, the stage players they did for the anime. So uh, that's Bushy Bushy Roads uh, uh, is is as much about their performances as songs as it is about them being on screen as VAs. Yeah, fair. Uh, this. Uh, anime started out as a series of stage plays. Uh, the first one uh, premiered at the end of September uh, 2017. It had follow-ups. It was delayed substantially by the COVID pandemic, but there is a fourth play that's supposed to be landing in February 2023. I don't know what if they're following the same direction as the as the anime or if they're not going to adapt the bonkers plot of the movie uh, into a stage play. Um, but we also have like a cell phone game. We have uh, spinoffs, uh, like a, a gag chibi spinoffs and the manga. So there's a lot of different directions. We are going to be focusing on the anime, uh, which came out in uh, ran from July to September 2018. The movie came out in 2020, um, preceded by a recap movie, Rondo, 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 which cruelly had a little bit of new footage that I'll be explaining <laughs> to Duncan in the process of this podcast. Uh, but yeah, I ignored this uh, when it came out. I don't really I know why. I think, <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing is like you, Duncan was like, that was when you're in like, you're super like just really into like anime about stage and performance stuff. I feel like you, you've always loved like Nana and, and uh, different sort of like theatrical stuff. And so I just kind of like wrote it off. as like, Oh, Duncan's watching another anime about like being in a theater troupe, mm -hmm. which sure it's great, but I don't need it. And then <laughs> I decided to surprise you for a, uh, for our hundredth episode and like, wow, wow. Review Starlight's great. I know I said that in the hundredth <laughs> episode, but again, like just bowled over this generation's Utena is probably going a bit too far, but not I mean, it's that an anime that, that constantly I mean, demands comparison to to Revolutionary yeah. Girl Utena. So and and one where the director is very aware of how much um, he was mentored by Ikahara that his mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he served his early apprenticeships the wrong word but on things like. Um, 
Penguin Drum was the main one he, where he did a lot of um, work in the, doing keys, scripts and storyboards. And then from there to his his breakout, essentially, which was... Uh, um, can't remember the damn bears. The bears, bears, bears. Yurikuma, Yurikuma Arashi, the most forgettable of Ikohara's yeah. sad, sad, Sadly, he, he, with us praising him so much, uh, the, the most forgettable Ikohara was the one where he had the most influence, where he was assistant director uh, on Yurikuma Arashi. And th- then we get this, his, the only thing he has directed, literally. That's it. Review Starlight and is his sole directing credit. And... God knows what he'll what do a, after it. Yeah, what a what a what a first solo directing gig to be mm. uh, to be to be known for. Um, so yes, review Starlight. I'm not, I was really tempted to launch it. Starlight is a, is a tragedy. It's about two girls. No, it's the. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's one of the nice things. We'll talk about it later about how the the anime and the play that it's nominally about interpenetrate each other and kind of reduplicate themselves. But uh, review Starlight. The 2018 anime um, is about a lazy girl at a high-power theater school who, when her long-lost childhood friend suddenly joins the school, she becomes involved in these series of surreal, mystical duels that promise to make the winner a top star, and they discover the dark, dark secrets behind the duels as characters try to advance their own ends and everyone reaches to be on that stage and to make an impression. And then the movie uh, is about what happens after the anime ends. <laughs> it's, it's a really facile way to explain it, but it is, I think in general, Review Starlight is about how the audience demands a story to keep going and how the audience is the fuel. They talk a lot about fuel for stardom, mm. but um, we have the giraffe be like, isn't this great? And you're making it happen because you're so selfish and greedy for wanting to know more about these girls, even though they're clearly suffering. Yeah. And then in the in the movie, we literally have the two main characters turn and be like, oh, there's an audience watching us. So it is it is literally just the movie is literally just about like we want to know more about these characters. We demand the story keeps going. How does that that play out? Mm. And Makes it a hard show to talk about in terms of plot events, as we joked about before recording. Um, but in terms of just like a beautiful web of character arcs and people with different desires at loggerheads to each other, it's a really meaty show to watch and to hear other people talk about and to hear who everyone's favorite characters are. Because best girlism is yeah. kind of an, an, an ugly black eye in, in anime. But there are characters whose 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 tragedies, whose flaws whose dreams you find yourself more attracted to. And I think everyone gets a, a very full meal, even characters you think of as like, oh, the boring one who cooks bananas, or oh, the one who's just like the simp friend who is never going to be the main character. Yeah. They all get some some stuff. I, I, I think the, uh, the thing which doing a rewatch of this reminds me of both the series and just about squeezing in one of the movie as well is that, wow, these things reward rewatching. Because yeah. they are like we've talked about other shows being dense, but holy moly, this this the, especially because this has a, a habit of foreshadowing. It it likes its foreshadowing. It mm. likes to, to yeah. go, hey, you remember this thing I'm saying right now? It's going to make a lot of sense in six episodes time or in 120 minutes time, whichever it happens to be at that time. Um, and going back and rewatching the series and just finding oh this is 
this was just setting its themes out in plain language from the very start and we were just like yeah that's that's, that's just girly happy girly dialogue don't worry that'll be fine but no no this yeah they they tempt they tempt us to see the characters as the tropes because um i mean you know when i talk about like a kebby's sailor uniform mm-hmm. and stuff i like oh like all these like beautiful realizations of like super tropey girl characters in anime and that's how everyone is introduced to you in review starlight it's like oh there's the nice motherly one there is the like kind of shy but earnest friend there's the the sleepy one there's the tomboy there's the perfect goddess there's the french girl uh like all the archetypes are there (laughs) and then we're forced to confront their interiority over and over again through these duels and they even allow for further density because it's revealed in episode seven that we're in the middle of like a time loop that we have no idea how long it's been going on mm. um, at, at least dozens of times. And so we really have to, we really like learn. It's, it's a really intensive learning experience of, of these characters and their, their damage, honestly, yeah. to, to a big extent, why th- they want to be on stage and be someone else or be themselves more really. I th- if I was to give one criticism to the show is that, the lead pair of uh, Karen and uh, Hikari, I don't think, feel like a lead pair at times. I think they did such a good job of bringing the whole cast forward. In particular, uh, Nana's uh, plot turn, which you just brought up, her, her, ste- <laughs> her stepping literally from being in the background into yeah, the, the support the, character into 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 the front of the stage and taking up position zero and like <laughs> that that whole you say what this, this is this is i i didn't no one i no one saw that coming anyone who says they did is, is lying through their the, teeth you mean the gag banana themed character is actually like a like a disgusting dual wielding beast monster who just <laughs> And, and, and you know, and you can't then, stop winning. <laughs> I, I know I'm coming into come to this early, but they managed to do it again to us. So this this, this thing, like they, they've already gone. Yeah, bananas is kind of a, a badass. Like banana can kick anyone's ass when she she ever she wants. And and then the, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. And she she seems to have a bit come to a resolution now. Then half an hour or so in beast mode, boom. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she, so I don't want to jump ahead too, too far, even though you just have, uh, but let's go ahead and focus just on the show first. And then I'll touch on Rondo, 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 and then we can go into the movie, which I think the movie that the show itself is, I, is, I think dense, but I think it's a fairly like normal story. It's a story of, it's a reverse tragedy. It's a tragedy that gets to like, they literally change the script at the end of like, oh no, they can end up together all because I translated the book that this was actually based on. Um, but and then the movie itself is almost like incomprehensibly abstract at certain points, especially when the, when the giraffe turns into, into vegetables and then yeah. catches on fire, Goes uh, which is a, a baffling sentence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, you have these, so the way that the, the, the anime works um, is we have several devices uh, that function to make us aware of the different levels of fiction that are happening. We have the, we have the fact that the anime is the allegory for the play starlight about these two friends who try to get a star to cure one of them's amnesia. Uh, 
but also the play, the anime contains the play, the anime is the play, the characters are in the play, they watch the play, they watch themselves watching the play. There are these these layers of reality as that kind of relate to when you're on the stage playing a person or you're playing yourself playing a person, these kind of disassembly of identity, disassembly of narrative reality that that the show really relishes in. Um, but at its core, it's a it's a it's a series about competition driving us to excellence. At least I feel it is. The girls are paired off into these like oil and water pairs. Um, they fight, they they sing their feelings out in the backing track while also talking uh, during the fight, um, which I assume when it was a stage play, they just would sing these yeah. would be musical numbers that the characters would sing. And I found out that the that there's not even a giraffe in the stage play, so why why watch it at all? It's a voice from off stage. Um, I love the giraffe. I mean, uh, but... the, the I think the giraffe was the first time um, I heard Tsuda Kenjiro. I think it was the first role which I really caught him in. Like I can't remember anything before that where he was like a character who was really notable to me and it's a it's a it's a exceptional performance when he at the end of the the anime series when when he's just like what are you it's just yeah his catchphrases which i've said dozens of times in the course of this podcast of like the wakari mas but he's just like screaming it with this like this delirious joy and it really it keeps him from being QB, if you think of, of <laughs> yeah. Madoka. Yeah. It keeps him from being like the sinister devil, although the show does bring in a devil with the movie, uh, metaphorically. But no, he he's there to watch a really awesome play, and he's more excited than us, and it kind of sets a really cool energy there. And he wants to see these characters fight. He wants to, to see them expose each other's weaknesses, give each other a chance to grow, and make us ask ourselves, like, what is it about being the top star that would make you that would make you participate in a duel that eight out of 10 of you will have all of your talents sucked out of you to make one person. And that is like, I mean, I think that's a great metaphor for like so few people make it as stars mm. in the real world and the rest of us, you know, get other jobs. Especially if you pick the stage of their career they're at, like uh, essentially yeah. high school, like, the number of people who graduate high school who go on to actually be a quote-unquote star is minuscule, like absolutely minuscule. And the idea that you have to burn your way through the the connections you're making while at the same time using those connections to sort of drive you further on, to learn, to absorb the best of other people, to make yourself into something better than them... Like, there's a lot of respect for the sheer drive it takes for someone to become that sort of star. And for the unfairness of that, for how even the most sincere study can be worthless in front of someone who just is better than you, who just has the natural charisma to just dominate a stage. Yeah, and it's funny because we have Tendo Maya, the... the it, it sucks to say stock because I think Maya is much more subtle than like the stock, like perfect, like pure thoroughbred or whatever, whatever yeah. language they use in the anime. Um, but like and I when you first watch, it, you expect her to be like represent stagnation, the stagnation of supremacy. But actually, it's Nana, the like the shy background girl who's just making everyone bananas and is like, oh, I just take pictures of everything. 
Um, and it's, it's not necessarily, it's not talent that causes us to stagnate. It's, it's being too attached to what you've done. And, uh, Maya is the one who like her catchphrase as opposed one of her catchphrases is this is Tendo Maya, which is, you know, whatever, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but she's, she's like, I'm already on the stage. Like she knows that like everything is a performance and therefore she doesn't have Nana's like obsessive fear, uh, of, of losing this magic that, you know, she's never going to achieve again. The thing that makes her create the time loop, the thing that makes her photograph everything where she like goes to the time loop and she's still photographing stuff, even though as far as she knows, she's got these people trapped in this one year of doing their first stage production forever, but she's still taking photographs. Um, and she's to the point that like when Hikari is introduced, you see her, you see her gasp and shock that there's a new girl, a transfer student. Um, it's so interesting to, yeah. to, yeah, to, to see Nana as it's not the best character who is the metaphor for like, Oh, you got to watch out. Cause like, if you don't keep growing, you'll stagnate. We have several characters who, I mean, everyone is stagnating in some way, even in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, Maya and Claudine talk about how they've become too focused on each other's rivalry and they've stopped growing more holistically but yeah it's 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 really interesting how the show doesn't have and the movie don't have a linear idea of talent um talent Mm, is yeah while it is also a continuum of like not as good as tendo maya also like you can get stalled out you can get stuck you can reach a plateau at any level of talent because it's about a variety of factors that make you pursue being a stage girl make you pursue being the top star yeah it's only Karen who's just like, no, we can all be top stars, which is the classic, like, idealistic protagonist opinion. But it is the thing that breaks the show, even if Hikari betrays her uh, out of a sense of selflessness at the end. She's the one who's like, this isn't a zero-sum game. Like, we help each other grow by by collaborating and competing, which is a beautiful message. And I think the show pulls it off almost flawlessly, even though, as you say, Hikari and Karen are some of the less compelling characters in the show. Um, but I think that's part of the charm is that anyone could be the protagonist in a different version of the script. Um, even my beloved Karuko, who's just like the lazy Kyoto girl who is just, uh, she's both the worst and the best. <laughs> she is. And well, I can... she, she's the one who she's another, like I said, another stagnation. She's someone who like reached the, the pinnacle of her talent when she was like eight and like now she she knows she can inherit this storied school of dance and she doesn't need to improve. And she finds it annoying that people expect her to keep improving and expect her to like want something as bad as everyone else. But she does want. I don't know. I love I love Karoku and not just because she calls everyone so and so Han and uses Uchi, which uh, makes me think of Lum from Urusei Yatsura. <laughs> so, ugh. That's appropriate because Lum's very much using uh, older idioms and she is, if nothing, if not a throwback in terms of uh, her relationship to th- this old school of dance, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much more we can say about the series. I think, I think we have at <laughs> length covered it. And yeah. like this, 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 we could just do another show on on it and probably still say new things from what we've seen it this second time around like and i think that's probably a good thing <laughs> i I, th- yeah, I think some no, people I... will bounce off it though because of that that density of information i think 
I've I famously have admitted to bouncing off Utena the first time around of of reading it just from what was being shown me first time and rather than doing taking what's obviously being put out there for me by the director and saying okay examine this and it Andy will occasionally rail <laughs> against something for being pretentious and sometimes I don't think pretension is a bad thing like not at all no you can reach the stars and know you will fall short but reach for them all the same and I think that's that's very much what this invites its viewers to do. Yeah, I think if you grew up a a nerdy brainiac in the 90s and 2000s and your first anime were Evangelion, Serial Experiments, Lane, Utena, these kind of esoteric, uh, hard to digest anime, I think you, at least in my case, you eventually get a filter where you know that not everything is meaningful but you just kind of have to kind of passively approach everything as if it is meaningful and then wait for the the director and a good director will give you this callback that mm -hmm. allows you to recontextualize what seemed like a, a pregnant moment or a pregnant line or or something like that. And I don't know, it's in this culture of infinite, infinite media like rewatching, I feel like is sometimes out of fashion, and mm -hmm. you're you're completely right that that Kageki showed Kageki showed you. Uh, no, um, they both have the fucking hundredth class, which is for some reason just means that they're stored next to each other in the file cabinet of my mind. I no, mean, in review fair, Starlight. There's, there's not that many uh, shows about Tarazuka <laughs> review style uh, shows. And well, also the full anime title of, of Review Starlight is Shoujo Kageki Review Starlight. Yeah. Stage Girls Review Starlight, which is even more... Uh, um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, motherfucker. Is great to rewatch because it does have these densities. There are, there are clues everywhere that they're in a time loop in the first six episodes. Um, they don't hide it at all. It's just, it's not something that enters into your, into your, it, it, into your realm of possibility yeah. until you see die banana win and then be like, I want to do this again forever. <laughs> I can't see it yet. Her, her like her, like it's too bright. I can't see it yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's the way it should be. You shouldn't know you're in a, in a time loop <laughs> or people will get really mad. In, like <laughs> in Blissade. <eight. laughs> no. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but it, it, it is, that. it is something. <laughs> I, I, Inglesate stand here, but but yeah, this is a bit more of a palatable uh, time loop for normies. Uh, but I did kind of I did kind of wish that we did have Andy or Jeff on here because I think they would both like it. I think Andy actually would probably performatively hate it, but deep down, it'd be one of those things he'd be talking about for like months afterward because it's a it's an affecting show full of good characters. But it would be nice to get a to get a fresh review because with you and me both, it's a, it's a rewatch and it's a rewatch of something we love, which means that we're coming to it with a certain perspective. Uh, but then again, for you, dear listener, it's probably better to hear two guys talk about an anime they love than two guys talk about an anime they hate. You get enough of that for me and the real anime podcast. So instead let's move on to the movies. If we're ready. Yeah. I so mean, yeah, the what you can first, uh, introduce me to the movie i never saw because it's yeah, not it's, available it, for anywhere in the freaking west because of typical sodding anime licensing bullshit yeah 
uh, yeah, Ronda Rondo came out in, in summer 2020, and it is a recap movie. Uh, as we've said before, recap movies are often popular because you can air them before the full movie so that people won't have to track down an anime that aired at 3 in the morning on Saturdays to understand what's going on in this movie. And I imagine especially Review Starlight would be hard to understand if you just walked into the movie. But Ronda Rondo has, makes the interesting choice to recut it with almost die banana as the main character like it show it reveals the time loop from the beginning and then has karen come in and disrupt the time loop and win so it kind of almost has a bit more of a tragedy feel to it which is appropriate because um because review style is obsessed with the mechanics of tragedy what makes a story a tragedy rather than any other sort of plot um, but yeah, so it has Die Banana reali- realizing that she's losing control of this like perfect self-contained world. Karen comes in with her ceaseless optimism and her lectures about being a star and wanting to wanting to kiss Hikari and <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, and then yeah, and then it, it ends, and then we have this weird ending where um, the desert that exists in kind of the void of the dual arena. I don't know. It's a the show is full of liminal spaces, um, but the desert where Hikari is ultimately trapped at the end of the show, Dai Banana is, is hanging out there. There's a blood red star and there are flashes of, uh, of butchery on this train. We see all the other characters just soaked in blood, throats slit, heads at a wrong angle, dead eyes staring, and Nana worries with the giraffe that... Um, that this is going to happen soon, and then we cut, and then they made us wait, wait a whole fucking year for the for the for the movie, uh, where it turns out it's just tomato juice. Uh, uh, but so yeah, let's let's, let's just go <laughs> straight to that because I, I alluded to it earlier that when we want shame on them, when we try shame on me, and very much shame on me because I I, <laughs> I, I did not see that particular I, like so that they're fight we see them fighting again. Uh, and and then suddenly there's blood and there has because the combat has always been so iconic and about these uh gestures and like mm-hmm. the, the the buckle like as as in utina in utina like use the rose flying off the the breast of the the shirt and in this case the the little uh star pin loosening the cloak and dropping down and for it to be Blood suddenly spurting out of someone, and the screen covered in drops. Just like, pardon, pardon, and then just a couple of seconds later, ten up going, calm down. It's just, it's just fake blood. This is theatre, and like, yeah, that, that's at, so good. Just like her being so calm, where we, we as the audience are completely f- freaking out, was just so perfect for her character and for your worst girl also to have the second best line of that with with her just <laughs> it cutting with her going hmm this tastes sweet <laughs> yeah it's it, it's it is really a triumph of the movie that they make us completely forget that every part of the show up to this point has been theatrical artifice but it makes sense that the girl who claims that she's always on stage like she knows it's fake um she knows that like I mean, she makes an argument later in the in the movie that she has no soul, that she that, that there's no soul, she has no soul to steal, that she has been that she has been everyone and can be anyone, and you never know if you're talking to the real person. But for her to at the same time often have the most cutting 
perception of reality, uh, the, being the most grounded person because she's the one who's most grounded in this anime as a theatrical performance, which again is the like the layers of reality and the uh, the, the the deceptiveness of fiction yeah. being brought up again. And we've we just a brief reminder is that there's a vast difference in the um, experience of the, of the VAs for this series as well. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tenjo's VA is quite storied and most of the cast have one or two shows to their name. Some t- for some it was even their debut and all of them were superb and remain superb in, in the film. So, yes. Um, so there's a vast difference in the real um, experience experience and uh, knowledge of the actresses involved in this and the fact that uh, Tenjo is the one who they choose to be this grounded one this actress who is not just a thoroughbred but vastly more experienced in in inhabiting other roles in real life to be this anchor in in the show and the films is like a stunning casting decision like sometimes maybe it's it's the easy one maybe it's 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 so easy to to look at her her and and to hear her and to realize yeah this 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 girl can be an effortless linchpin yeah she's she has this this rich resonant voice that is that is incredibly assured incredibly confident even when she's losing at babies for at at, uh was it babies for shogi that they're playing um even when she's losing because she can't uh, she can't stand to lose a piece because she's that much of a, a thoroughbred um so she can't sacrifice pieces for the greater good like even then like she's not like gasping or or whimpering she just has this it's a real i mean i love when they do that one of my favorite things about um c3boo the airsoft uh <laughs> the post uh annihilation gynax airsoft <laughs> thing is that they have the senpai be an experienced voice actress and all the rest of the characters are voiced by new new ones and you do you do feel the difference in um in performance uh and in just the timbre of their voice and you posted a really cool excerpt from um from an uh from an interview where yeah. apparently like uh, the voice actress who voices Karen is is so like considers herself kind of a pessimistic person and struggling to play like Karen, who is just positive to the point of stupidity. I mean, yes, she's, very I much. Don't, we don't hear we don't hear her called Bakaren that much, but she gets called <laughs> Bakaren at least much. Uh, <laughs> they love their portmanteau nickname with Bana Nice and yeah. Bakaren. Oh, although goodness. they did, and and like I think. Um, that Nana even comments that that's that her she was one of the things she comments to Hikari when the the loops uncovered is I never had this name Karen was never called all that and how dare you give yeah, people it's nicknames yeah. it's, it's, how dare you change this and and it and it shows that and it shows the the insecurity and selfishness behind the loop because Nana we're going back to the the show again we just can't help ourselves uh, well, but yeah she. She she's she admits that like she says she's protecting everybody from like fear and disappointment, but it's it's her fear that this is a one time thing that she'll never have this again. And then when we go to the reviews, the back half of the movie, after we kind of just set up that everyone's moving on, except for Karen, who is kind of frozen in grief because Hikari disappeared again girl loves running away mm. um once we go to the reviews after the which is begins with the review of annihilation the train duel where nana 
single-handedly fights eight other people and beats them all um, in just beautiful choreography. The the shot when she throws her wakizashi and then walks over to to Juna, the the nerdy class rep girl, and just like picks it up in one gesture as she picks it up, cuts off her button, and then and then brings the sword back to her side. Just stupendous animation. I'm tearing mm-hmm. up thinking about it. Uh, but that's the first of the reviews, and each of the reviews is about, in my argument, which we can go through them mm-hmm. because I think they are all great great character revelations. But the anime was about uh, resolving the fundamental question of who is the top star? Will Hikari and Karen ever share the stage again? Um, but it, but the movie is about acknowledging and then resolving that all the characters' relationships are left with these fundamental tensions that need to be resolved for the people to move forward. That's why we have this whole thing of, of the train will proceed to the next station. Um, what are you going to do? Mm. Um they describe this as like wild screen broke and annihilation. Nana, of course, being kind of the secret main character, I guess, after after Rondo, Rondo, Rondo makes that argument um, that that she she realizes that, like, it's over, like everyone's going to their own shit. Um, and tellingly, at the end of the movie, when when Hikari is visiting everyone, she just texts uh texts Nana who is at the the Royal Academy. They don't they don't meet as opposed to Ikari meeting everyone else. Like she has like we resolved that tension with Madonna's characters that she wanted to keep everyone together, wanted to preserve this one moment, and she finally leaves after beating everybody abs- except Tendo absolutely brutally and proving that she could have kept them together. She accepts. Um and then we have a then they play out their deaths. Like they're in a way they almost die in front of her as as her accepting this change in her character. Mm. You thought you were going to come here prepared with like really nerdy overanalyzation, but I have a, I texted myself uh, the theme of every single of the reviews for the movie. So I, I'm here to annihilate you. Nana, Nana like <laughs> that, that first, first moment is, is basically her just going, you decided you're finished. You what? <laughs> it's like, she has a, a modicum of acceptance in the in the series of 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 that this stasis the stasis wasn't right it, it didn't allow them to develop mm. she accepts it but for them to then fall into their own stasis is to mm-hmm. part of the plot of the the series is that because of this gesture made by Hikari where she she's like I'm not going to steal everyone else's star power and Mm -hmm. I will sacrifice myself in order for that to be the case. So in, in the law of review starlight, um, (laughs) no one loses their star power and yet everyone does somehow. And Nana is the person who realizes that Nana and Nana sees that everyone has lost that aspiration to, to be they've accepted that Karen had this moment where she transcended them all they and they kind of aren't vying for that top star anymore even yeah, even they're tenjo playing out, they're playing out the epilogue yeah yeah even tenjo is just doing what's expected of her and to someone who's who's if you've just been fighting furiously for who god knows how long to maintain this cherished thing you you loved and it just withers to nothing you're going to be 
pissed. It's <laughs> a less poetic way of, you, of describing it than you did, Ben, but just the sheer anger of seeing talent wasted mm-hmm. and the talent of, of people you love wasted even more so. Like that, as you say, Annihilation was was an excellent choice of them to describe that that duel because it's just like if if you aren't going to make use of your talent then you may as well just get the fuck off this train and and it's interesting because the the what happens before then is they have a fight when they're about to go to see the new national theater troupe whatever um the thing that most of them are joining the like the the most prestigious like local troupe um and Karoku the the the, the spoiled heiress from Kyoto is the one who's like, don't you wish that there were more auditions? Don't you wish you were still vying for top star? This is all useless now. Everything's useless. Um, and she's one to talk because she's going to just go home and p- take up a role that's been waiting for her the whole time. She doesn't have to risk. She doesn't even need the top star, but it still galls her as someone who is near the bottom of the rankings every single time. And that was her arc in the, in the anime show was that she, she never excelled. She was complacent. She was stagnant. She was one of the more stagnant characters. She's still the one who who picks a fight with everybody that this is stupid and pointless and that they're just like living out the rest of their lives like it's preordained and there is no thrill. There is no chance for exceptional transcendence. Um, and then she's the first one to fall when Nana starts when Nana starts dropping yeah, bodies. Of, of course. Um, because because. She, Kaoru doesn't have the fire. She's never needed it, and she kind of resents that everyone else expects her to have it. But at the same time, I don't know. Then she gets a good fight with Futaba. Great couple. I bet there's so much Yuri shit about them too, because I mean, that's a good coupling. So much. She, there's going to be a huge amount of Yuri stuff about every single one of them, to be frank. But <laughs> before we go too far into the, the jewels, I just sure. want to quickly address the. Uh, the 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 unexpected joy of um, the adventures of Small Karen and Hikari, which was uh, <laughs> as a good chunk of the first half hour, which is just going and seeing who Karen and Hikari were before they became stage girls, because I think there is a sense that this widescreen part of the widescreen baroque is about taking a step back and seeing a performance, an actor, an actress. Uh, a role in its context looking at not just how an actor sees himself in a in the context of a performance within a career within a life but how the who the where and the why we see a performance with matters like why Mm -hmm. we we get to see why that first performance of starlight mattered to karen and hikari and like we see apparently that section was inspired by that conversation the director had with uh, Karen's act- actress, like this idea that Karen wasn't always this confident kid. Like you can have yeah, this, yeah. you expect to go see, see what we see of small Karen in the, um, in the series is this li- lively kid, just is bringing her in this, not quite, not very quiet Hikari along with her and that her being the typical happy, yeah, we're going to make a promise. Is And what we see of her in here is this very, very quiet kid who is, who is like there hiding behind her teacher as all the other kids run around the playground. And that was a surprise, like not, not in terms of just choosing to spend time with them, but choosing to sort of ground them as like, 
kids are always so two-dimensional in anime like a kid is just a kid like they don't really have much subtlety you don't get an emotional variety because mostly what they want to get across is this is a kid that's that's all Mm -hmm. that that that, that, unless it's a show like um non-on-bury where we're spending a long time with them that their, their quirks and the way they play against type isn't as important. But here, that the awkwardness of um, Karen and Hikari's moments of playfulness, like I love like their first bonding moment is they're in class together and it's a little musical bit and they're, they're, they're <laughs> like all doing these little um, click-clack clacker things and the whole class is doing it and Karen's out of tune and she's... she's, she's like scared to hit it because she, she she's self-conscious that she's out of tune and Hikari just reaches across and hits hers in time and she's like <laughs> yeah that's a great moment and it's just lovely this moment of of connection and kindness between them and how they sort of from there they they their relationship builds and how they come to make this promise that that and the the, the sort of best use of of Google as a subplot in any <laughs> anime where they they make this rules I I'm I'm not I'm not going to uh, we won't we won't speak or or see each other until uh, we we meet again on stage and and what what Karen realizes as she grows up does that mean I can't Google her. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, like, <laughs> it, it's not to quote an old episode title, but them childhood promises and watching that promise, like watching that promise expand to the point that it just means complete alienation from her closest friend. Um, it really lets us see why Karen is so desperate to reconnect with Hikari now that she's in front of her. And also seeing the background, how Karen used to be this like shy, shirking girl who relied on Hikari um, to interact with the world is why Hikari keeps being like, well, now I need to leave Karen alone so that she can be her own person mm, again. Yeah. It makes it, it makes it not annoying. I mean, I'm, I'm still annoyed that, that Hikari ran away. Um, that never works, especially in anime. Uh, but it, it, it gives us context for like the baggage that has informed these characters on again, off again relationship. The fact that both of them are each other's reason for wanting to be on stage and yet they're not comfortable around each other. Um, he, Karen thinks there's no point in, in trying hard if Hikari's not there to be with her on stage. Hikari thinks that she's holding Karen back. It's, yeah, it, and it, it gets resolved in the final duel, which we'll eventually get to at the at the end of this discussion. Yeah. But I do think that the, the childhood stuff is a, is a great context because we have the mom being like, before Hikari became her friend, all she ever cared about was this, like, little dress-up scan card video game that looked... I don't know. I guess it, it might be fun. I don't know. It looks, it looks a little bit uh, princessy, <laughs> didn't it? Uh, yeah. And uh, I... I that I, it was quite just nice to see them around adults because, like, so often in, like, any film, like, it's ch- children are just divorced from the... Well, divorced from their parents is the wrong way, way of phrasing this. <laughs> um, Maybe in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the trope the, the kid is separated from their parent we know so they can have full reign to do whatever they want and yet we see we see the e karen's mum and hikari's mum and karen's aunt who wins best shit-eating smirk of of all or, <laughs> like, I, I just love that you can have a character who we essentially see for two scenes just have this, this sort of the smirk to karen and be while just basically being both affectionate and that 
that thing which an adult can do be you'd be absolute certain she's right while talking down to a child like i mean karen's promise is stupid i'm i'm with the aunt here i'm team aunt honestly <laughs> like it's a it's just like google like what and and it, it's so funny that she does actually google her at one point like she she broke her promise and that like adds to karen's insecurity when kikari finally does come like oh no is she here because i broke the promise by looking her up um and it's just oh my god it, it's it is i mean i used to be a big like keeping promises is an important part of my personality and like believe me it still is but the kind of i guess it's like the 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 margaret thatcher line of like it, it, having powers like being a lady if you say it you you'll, you don't have it um and this is like like if you have to say like oh i keep promises all the time then you're probably pretty afraid that you have <laughs> not kept promises and that seems to be like karen's anxiety is that she she did something to fuck up their dream because because her friend bullied the shit out of her when she was going to go to london and said that she couldn't <laughs> that she couldn't talk to her or visit her it's so it allows it allows the childish promise to be childish and allows the mom to like get it but also be like but also you can just like look at a picture of her it's not gonna hurt and karen's like no it was a promise i, I like Ugh. that the the quiet mirror to that is the 101st class who we who we also meet in the the introduction which is the the people who come who are influenced by them like we we, we it starts like who how were they influenced and then who have they influenced and i i really enjoyed that just seeing these little moments of them sort of walking these new students around the 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 campus and like karen showing she still has that 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 ability to stun an audience and yet yeah doing nothing with it seemingly like pointedly we see them all doing like their career surveys with their teacher and karen's is blank and it's getting that that this this put this space where their juniors live, where they are b both an audience and a member of the cast, and that's this tension mm -hmm. um, which lives there. And I I enjoyed uh, them. I'm not sure if it's a, you would call them a, a, the, the, the the little the the mini writer and director of of the 101st year if you consider them surrogates for the the the, the creators of this show. But I loved that 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 they that the the writer has just been trying to write a script which has an answer to the 100th class's uh, starlight, but she can't come up with one, and so she. In the end, her her director just has to say to her, "We're just stopping here. It's going to be unfinished, and you have to live with that." Yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard when watching this show to know. Whenever they talk about the production, you don't know. There are situations where it's clearly an allegory for the production of the anime or the production of the movie, um, but also you can't watch it only like that because these are characters with their own desires and their own arcs. So you have to kind of have this doubled vision of uh, of this anime and the movie as allegories of creation, but also they're stories of people um, and people who obviously aren't stand there. There's no, besides, besides maybe the giraffe, no one's a stand in for the director or the writer uh, fully and completely. Um, but there is, there is still nonetheless, whenever you see someone struggle, whenever 
she sits whenever the the uh, the main the the writer girl Shion Amemiya. Uh, I I noticed <laughs> because I noticed her name was similar to Himemiya, but Ame instead of Hime. Anyway, um, when she's sitting there staring at like the final blank page, and and the director has to just be like, "It's we we will we will make a show about what you did." Like unfinished things happen, and. I don't even. I wonder if it's even like, as you said, an inversion, a mirror, with something else. You said something was else was an inversion, a mirror. The idea of being forced to make a movie to a complete story versus being forced to make a movie about an incomplete story. These sort of the anxiety around endings and the way that the the mm. giraffe says like this is a continuation of the ending is a, is a very. I wonder if it's as funny of a phrase in in Japanese as in English because like the idea this is the continuation of the ending is is very striking, and it really does make us realize that like it's almost the uh, this is a dumb metaphor. Um, I mean, but, but we're uh, in the land of dumb metaphors here, Ben. There's, there's uh, well, giant Tokyo t- towers descending from the sky. Sure, but I'm I'm making an, a comparison to a, a fairly irrelevant video game from the 2010s of like Spec Ops line of like the only way to stop this from happening is to stop is to stop playing the game. The only way <laughs> to give these people an ending is to is to cease watching. And the way that it, it taunts us with the fact that because we know this is not the ending, it is just a ending, we will keep watching as long as they keep offering us more stuff to watch. And the way that they kind of imply that this is greedy or this is selfish or this is prolonging the suffering of certain characters, it really, like, while being an incredibly beautiful and entertaining thing to watch, really challenging us for, like, our our complicity as an audience, even before, again, they have Karen and Hikari be like, oh, are they always so close? Uh, when yeah. they look at the screen, um, it's not every anime does that, and I yeah. enjoy it, and I think it it really they earn it too because it's the moment when we're leaning the furthest towards the screen to see the two characters with their childhood promises and their faded friendship and their plan to stand together on stage as stars one day. We are leaning close, and then they look and see us, and they're they're discomfited by the fact that this is a performance. This is not just them working out their feelings we should probably just move to the reviews yeah indeed yeah <laughs> proper um because i do think that each one of them has a really apt title um i i wish i'd done the same close reading for for the the reviews in the show proper but in the movie at least like after we have annihilation the next one is resentment the the realization that kaoroku and uh Karoko and futaba need to be apart to grow um and them trying to be like i will if we have to leave i want to be the one to leave and are like who's who is who is following who in these situations and the realization that to keep any one of to keep one of them from following the other they need to go in separate directions even though like they're incredibly close Mm -hmm. intimate friends to the point that like one of them carries the other around like a like a snuggie i i loved the this i think something which stood out uh, in this particular review was how they chose their cost. It was the first time we'd seen them as anything other than than showgirl. That showgirls? Nope. Nope. Showgirls. Oh no. <laughs> stage See, girls. <laughs> first time we had seen them as anything other than stage girls. Like 
the choice of costumes for them. I loved mm-hmm. loved uh, Futaba in the, the sort of typical delinquent in, in tracksuits <laughs> with the to go with her bike and the, the uh, light festooned uh, truck behind her as their rival yeah. gangs go to war, and that their her slightly confused private dick uh costume and <laughs> while uh uh Koko goes full uh, femme fatale and yeah if if they they don't in, in a bath shit. of alcohol that she's pouring into herself and is spilling out of the oh it's so yeah. good yes <laughs> sorry I mean, go like ahead. if 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 you can't if people can't ship those two like no no one can because dear god like <laughs> like not like without those things it's just like the 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 finale of that whole thing like obviously we've talked before like each of these ritualized jewel as nana tells us all these jewels end in the same way where the star is cut and the petals fly and and the curtain mm-hmm. drops and normally that's in some big gesture like a huge sweep down of the sword or whatever and here it ends with just a little dagger clink yeah. Slipping, slipping, and like in terms of intimacy, like you're you're doing as much as you can without out in uh, without getting a bit age inappropriate. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's not about it's not about sex. It, this show is generally pretty devoid of of sex appeal, just besides the attractiveness of the of the character designs. But like the intimacy, the romance, the fact that you know that Futaba leaves her, her bike with her and then at the end, in the end credits, when she knocks oh, it over, it's like, yeah. don't tell Futaba. Oh, so good. Best girl. Uh, but, Best girl. Uh, <laughs> you, you, want a, you want a rotten woman. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and then we move on to your best girl with the uh, the review of competition um, that uh, that Mahiru must but can never fully accept the importance of Hikari in Karen's life. And to do that, we have a fun competition get incredibly dark. And I at when I watched it the first time, like they managed to make it pretty disturbing with the with. Hikari getting trapped in the elevator with the the black light, and then just my hero going full yandere. It's it really lets the character who's always going to be second fiddle, like be angry at the main character in a very mm. authentic and yet true to the character's thoughts and desires and needs way it's a, it's a great scene too and i just love my hero's like stupid shiggly painted like cardboard everything or wood plywood yeah. everything that pops up <laughs> for them to to have a character basically realize that oh i'm not the first girl and uh <laughs> to realize realize like there's nothing she can do about that and yet she also has affection and respect for the person who has used, has took that role and to allow herself to compete in a way to, mm-hmm. that she always knows she's she, to compete despite knowing she will lose to go and yeah. do her best all the same and for the and that was as part of her arc in in the thing like in the part of her arc in the series that she knew she wasn't ever going to be she was always one of the low low scoring girls and she always knew that 
she what came from a small town she's just like the baton twirling hometown girl from the countryside who brought potatoes to everyone and yeah <laughs> this acceptance of of yeah she still has things which she's the best at and and can and shine in her own way which i would argue that her superpower is her strength not only her physical yeah. strength which is something that they only occasionally seem to remember that she has she's supposed to be like tall and strong um, but when she and Hikari are facing off at the end, they're the same height for some reason, uh, which I try not to think about. Um, but yeah, her, her strength of like, she can take the damage and she can carry everybody to the, to the finish line. Like the idea that she's going to be someone who can support everybody as an, as a, as a star, I think is, is fundamental to her character is that she has the big teacher, the big, she has the big sister vibe with her six siblings or whatever that she mm. has up in the North. I would have. This is once again in something where we had enough duels. I would have liked to see her and Nana have a duel, like the the the. Yeah, this, they never this, really interact, do they? Yeah, <laughs> and like they are so. They have like very different. Like Nana's obviously set out to be like this this mother hen, like brooding over mm -hmm. the the lot of them, and Mahu's the big sister, and like there's there's a tension between the 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 oldest sister and the mum. I, I think in like any any group, like it's it's the battle for the matriarch, and we yeah. didn't really get that <laughs> sadly, but we did get um, her, as you say, going f full Yan full Yan after her carry beautiful Yan. Beautiful, uh, yeah. As a Yan connoisseur, that's the Yandere I like. Is is just like, oh, she she's not even mad. She just has made the decision to kill you. Is 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 the important like vibe, and she captures it perfectly. Great performance uh, by that actress who is Haruki Iwata. Yeah, and I really just enjoy that. When at the end they're they're sort of recovering after the the fight, and it's it's like clear that Hikari's like gonna go on to Karen, and and Miharu's who's letting her do that, and she's like Hikari's like I, I respect you. You've become such a good actress. I really believed you hated me, and off she goes, <laughs> and we just cut to Miharu going, I'm not that good an actress. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very honest thing to, to acknowledge that you might hate somebody, like, you might hate somebody for no reason forever, and you can, like, you can layer feelings of affection and respect on top of those, and clearly she has managed to, like, transplant her love of Karin onto, onto Hikari, but yeah, like, Karin said that I'll be here for you forever, and even after it's clear that, like, that can't happen even if Hikari wasn't in the equation. It's still something that she has to deal with and still has feelings about. It's a great, it's a great scene. It's um, my favorite scene is, is definitely the first time that the, the giraffe becomes made of, uh, made of uh, vegetables and then like becomes a nebula and a fire and a bunch of other surreal stuff. But that whole scene of a, uh, the way that the song changes and becomes like the, the lyrics become kind of snide and abusive when she does her full yandere turn. Great scene. Absolutely wonderful. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of the first scenes of the movie and then they built out the rest around it because <laughs> it seems to be very much someone that someone had an idea left over from the show of like, we did never let Mahiro get really mad at somebody and it's her, it's her time for that. And speaking of never let them get really mad, we have the review of hunting um, where Nana and Juna kind of both face the fact that they don't have clear, easy paths to stardom like the really talented people do. 
and Nana pushes Juna to like leave behind all the quotes that she hides behind to reassure herself that she has some esoteric understanding that other people who are less well read don't. Um, but then Nana herself acknowledges that like, yeah, she hasn't made decisions on her life either about whether she wants to be an actress, whether she wants to be a uh, script writer, cast crew director, what have you. It's a, it's kind of a weird fight because it, because Nana dresses up in like a slightly fascisty military uniform, but yeah. it's a good one too. It, it resolves the, the tension between two people who kind of both know that they're not meant for the spotlight. Um, but we're still important characters in, in the, the show itself. I don't know. Do you have any feelings about the review of Hunting? I mean, Do you like I, Juna? I like Juna's I, number two for me, honestly. I, so. I, I very much enjoyed Nana just doing a little raw at the start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Juna's like, I'm going to hunt you. And, and Nana's like, raw. <laughs> I think it's, it's one of the visually least interesting of the fights, but I think it's that's... Probably because all the others are setting a pretty high bar. And it still is one where we get two people who we're told are very close throughout the series. And as you say, both in their different ways realize that they can't be top star. In Juna's case, yeah. because as you say, she doesn't have the natural talent and she, she's more aware of that than anyone else she, because she does have the reading. She's, as you put it, she's she's the one who throws out the Shakespeare quotes throughout and who likes to be just studying constantly. And we're, to, we're told at the start uh, that she's going to go, she's not going to go to a stage school. She's going to go and just study uh, the I think it's the history of theatre somewhere, and which doesn't end up being what she does. Yeah. Interestingly, at the end, and Nana, on the other hand, is the one who ha clearly, by the fact that she can solo the entire group, has the <laughs> talent, but doesn't. And this is the, the 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 sweet sweet hypocrisy of it, is that despite dragging them all back because she's angry at them for not fulfilling their potential, she also knows that she has perhaps more potential than any of them but can't decide if that's she wants to, what she wants to do with it and that indecision of if she wants to be behind the lights or in front of them is the gap which Juna points out to her and yeah there's there's a lot of imagery in there about the the sort of stage splitting in half and and the, these passageways Paths opening up diverging, yeah. yeah and yeah. i think what nana needed and what juna provides is she has to be made aware of her hypocrisy she can't keep asking others to do what she will not she has to not pick something in opposition to others but pick it in relation to herself and yeah. finally by seeing juna make her own way forward i think Nana thinks she knows Juno perfectly. She thinks she yeah. knows, yeah, you will always fall back to your comforts of your words. You will never uh, take the risk of putting yourself out there. Because Juno, notably of all the stage girls, is the one who uses a bow. She sits at the back 
and she mm-hmm. shoots from afar. And it's only in this where she wonderful, wonderful, like Nana's, Nana's whole arc. This this thing is about <laughs> out grim, grim freaking stuff because Nana, the, the, this duel starts off with Nana just saying, offering her her short sword to Ujuna and going, eh, maybe if you're not going to fight, you should just take the easy way out. And, yeah, commit seppuku. Yeah, yeah. and the the Juna's resolution is eventually just picking up that that short short sword, just smashing smashing it into the remains of the the gem of her 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 bow, and just taking up up arms against uh, Nana with what she is as whatever she has to hand, and like I I love that that she it's by choosing to do that she has to go in close and it's she's she has to lose her detachment she has to to admit that this is something she wants and that it's not something she can look at with this emotional detachment she has to let herself be hurt and at the same time nana's always had two swords which kind of makes you think of her being between the uh the cast and the crew side mm-hmm. of things and she's forced to be left with one and she's like hey give me back my sword after after juna takes it but it's emblematic to her that like she there will eventually be one thing that she chooses um even if by the end of the show we we don't know what she will choose if she will stay with her dream of being on stage that she discovered or if she'll go with her her taste for directing and stagecraft that she gained when she was stage managing people's lives in a time loop <laughs> for infinity. So it is, it's not a, it's not an impactful, it's, it's sandwiched between like, as I said, a great Yandere performance and the two like elites of the class performing a four act allegory about the <laughs> artist and the devil, as I said. Um, so Let's it doesn't, it doesn't that, shine though. as brightly, but it is, it is an interesting clash between two, two minor characters. And it kind of, I mean, I mean, at the whole point of Ryu Starlights, there's no, no small actors, only small parts in a way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we do have um, onto the, the big hitters. The <laughs> the, uh, the review of Soul, um, where neither Maya nor Claudine, uh, well, Maya and Claudine both realize that neither of them have ever really shown their authentic selves, and they resolve um, to be more authentic on stage to each other to better push each other on. Um, but there's a very long allegory with an authentic contract with the devil um, and a big metal bird. I don't <laughs> fully understand everything that's going on in this in in this scene. Um, I think it's deliberately really esoteric and Faustian. But <laughs> I very much enjoyed uh, Claudine as as the devil though. Like she she has she she has a good. Good, good, wicked smile. Like, and when she when she says, "Don't you understand? I'm going to keep coming at you." And then she stabs herself and appears on the top of the. Oh, it's good. It's it's very dramatic, and it is their fight is great. There's a, a moment where uh, Claudine swings low, and Maya like slides like on her back and hip to get under the hit, and then like kicks herself up again. All the fights are great here. It's really bizarre. I mean, I can't blame the the awful Sentai copy on the back of the Blu-ray for like pushing the fact that they have good fights because. Even though it's a show not about the fights, even though it's clearly based on a stage musical where they just laid fights over every song, um, there's the battles are really good when there's when there's actual swordplay going on. I mean, that's because uh, the one of the things Tomohiro Furukawa has talked about uh, mm-hmm. that he learned from Yokohara is that you need to 
go out and you have to find the right people to do the right job for you. And when he decided, all right, uh, Review Starlet is going to have a a battle element to it, he went out and he found a very promising young uh, action director who's at the moment off doing uh, action direct, one of the the chief animation directing on Chainsaw Man, and that is is, uh, Hiroyuki uh, Saita, who, if you... Go and look at his Twitter's research. You will find many pics of an adorable old sp- spaniel or some similar uh, dog, which he obviously <laughs> loves dearly, uh, and which appears in just about every other post. But that is the most wall-eyed dog I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not uh, natively a dog person. Sorry, listeners. N- never, but never, never, never say it to that man's face because he would end you. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure he knows a lot about fighting. Apparently, from from this anime. <laughs> Yeah, but oh. I mean that's. I think Tendo always has had the most astonishing fights, like in in the the series as well. The motif of of stairs is always something uh, which uh, abounds her. Like she is mm-hmm. al- always starts at the top, and she might deign to come down to fight you, but she will end up at the top again. Except here, <laughs> she doesn't because uh, Claudine tricks her. Um, by being a tricksy girl and having not one but two uh, uh, buttons on, because the devil <laughs> never plays fair. And yeah, which is a great moment when when she's like, "Oh, I tricked you. My soul is this bird, which is not a real soul." And then and then when Claudine reveals her second button, she's like, "That's cheating." And it's like, "Oh, <laughs> okay, Mrs. Big Metal Bird, whatever." <laughs> Sorry, just had to interrupt. <laughs> it's so it's a funny scene because it is it's two liars going at each other, and she's got her whole statement of. Heroes have trials. Saints have temptations. I have the devil. Uh, is 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 such a? They're they're they are the same. It's the artist and the devil. It's it's a it's a trickster battle, which is an entertaining one, mm. and especially a, a better way to envision two two like consummate elites battling it out. Two people who are just, despite the fact that they lose a lot uh, to the main characters, um, they are on a different level from all the other people, and in and in a fair fight on a pitched field, they will always win. And that's kind of something that other characters have to deal with. Yeah. And as, as you alluded to earlier, the, the fact that um, the thing which separates uh, Tenjo from the traditional sort of, oh, ho, 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 heiress elite mm-hmm. type trope is that she very much wants to bring to lead others up the stairs as well she doesn't she will will, she is 100% confident that her place is at the top but she does want others to climb towards her she sees it as her her role her is is it uh, I can never pronounce this right Latin is not my forte but you will do this you will tell me the correct way absolutely noblesse oblige sort of uh, responsibility of someone Noblesse oblige is what it says. On... Is, is, is it just? There's no fun. It's just oblige. You just say it. Like, say it the same. No, noblesse oblige. It's French, not not Latin, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, noblesse oblige. It's just, which yeah. is appropriate enough for, for a fight against Claudine, I guess. Even though it's yeah, yeah, her and her like cute little Latin, cute little French. She's dropping all the time. Yeah, when she has to pretend to be sick in the show, <laughs> and she's just saying like, "Oh, I don't want any cream with this with this coffee." It's just like she's just saying like random fridge phrases and they're like, oh, she's very sick. She's she's delirious. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Claudine is not an easy character to like, but she's she's very funny when they let her be funny. And, and, the, and the best <laughs> thing about that is 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 all the girls don't know apart from Tenju, who just sort of like turns to her quietly and goes, "How long are you going to keep this up?" <laughs> and I, I just, uh, that, that they have a, a great intimacy and a great understanding of of how much the each other is capable of mm-hmm. this idea that uh, Tenjo sees the the talent in uh, Claudine and more than any of her her other classmates wants Claudine to push herself but because of who she is she never thinks that she can surpass her like that was always the thing in the, the mm-hmm. series in particular that she can't doesn't even see her as a rival she just sees her as an, a talent she wants to raise up and this whole uh, review is is Claudine just time after time in, in reminding her that I'm actually kind of of more like you than you realize because well, you act the sort of one who sees talent in others and helps them uh, realize it but I'm the one who, who saw what Futterburn needed a, a mentor and all the time Claudine's been doing exactly the same sort of things that Tenjo has while at the same time having a, a complex that maybe she shouldn't be maybe all of this is just her being presumptuous. Yeah, it's it's hard because Tenjo at times seems like... keep saying Tenjo. Tendo. Maya yeah. Tendo at times <laughs> keeps saying... I keep thinking of Utna Tenjo. That's the problem. Yeah, I do uh, the same. But uh, Maya Tendo, she... she it, it, you really are right to point out Noblesse Oblige which, with, with the whole thing of like she is willing to sacrifice herself in some way to be to be the, the finish line for other people um, while still knowing that she has her own self to work on and she is one of the more fully self-aware characters she's never she's never disoriented or fooled by things happening she knows what's going on um one almost might begin to wonder if she's won this duel in the past because of how how unflappable she is when it comes to the weird vicissitudes and and just accepting that accepting that this is not a single axis relationship that it that um Having someone who pushes who pushes her by trying so hard to 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 be her equal in her own way um, that this is a good thing that she can learn to be a competitor. We have that little baby's first shogi thing, as I said before, and she clearly has lessons still to learn. She still has things that she holds too closely or doesn't value properly, and realizing um, that just as both of them have kind of excelled by lying to each other more and more excellently which is i think what i got out of the the allegory about the artist and the devil um they can push each other by by telling each other the truth and being vulnerable to each other and not having to be these marble statues of excellence that other people look towards they can just they can just challenge each other both with lies and with truth and it it kind of takes the relationship from one dimensional to two dimensional or from two dimensional to three dimensional, I guess is the better metaphor. Regardless, mm-hmm. um, it is an interesting fight and it's very long. They, they devote a, a three act play with a surprise fourth act uh, to, to it, to it, but it does kind of make explicit what they did in the anime of these 
these pairs that push each other, what each person is getting out of, that it's not just someone wins and someone loses, although that is the fundamental nature of the duel. It's that people discover their vulnerabilities, and you can't discover those if you're not vulnerable to each other, and realizing that she has a rival who's so close to her excellence like I, I think it's 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 an empowering moment for Maya, and it's one that that she doesn't let down her guard because she's perfect like that. But it does it does make her see Claudine as something different than an also ran than a would be um, than someone who whose dream is to just be her and and not to do her own thing. So I think it's the hardest one to parse, and I'm not mm, entirely sure of yeah. my read, but I do think it is it is one where you can take a lot out of that. Because the whole duel is taking place in an allegory where they are standing in as reified concepts of <laughs> of uh, eternal things. So yeah, and then we yeah. move on to the finale. Which, speaking of abstract, it's hard to. But yeah, I think that I think that the finale, which which does not have a review um, title, it's called the final line, um, and the song is called something else. If you remind me, superstar spectacle. Yeah. Right. Um, the song, but it is just, it is like Hikari having to realize, having to admit, and Karin having to realize, having to admit that like they achieved their dream and now it's time to do their own thing together or apart. Um, that they, that throughout the duel, Karin can't stop saying that, you know, like, oh, it's about, it's about Hikari and it's about being with Hikari and it's about this and that. And like, that's not a reason to be on stage. It was a great reason for a kid to be on stage, but you've grown past that and you need to keep growing and they have to live for themselves now. And so it's kind of a tragedy. And it it does end with, although it's abstract and doesn't involve her death, like Hikari has to stab Karen and she has to be, as the show literally says, reborn um, as her own person as she spews out abstracted position zero <laughs> they, they really love that t-shape at the in the movie and she be- eventually becomes a position zero yes with a that sort of weird expression uh, like a, on on like a little face drawn on on the this giant me- metal t which is strapped yeah to a train hurtling through a dust storm in the middle of a desert yeah hurtling through the mad max fury road briefly and then she comes out and she is reborn again um i did found out that they sold uh <laughs> Uh, one of the production companies sells bath towels, like a big red bath towel that says I am reborn in the same font. And man, I wish I'd gotten in on that before before that sold out. That's fucking great. Uh, I would wear, I would go to the beach every day so I could just like behind me as like a cave. I am reborn. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny because because Karen spends the whole movie trying to get back to Hikari. And the lesson is like. Hikari did it for the wrong reasons, but she's right. Y'all need to grow separately. Um, and if you, if your careers, if your dreams bring you back together, that's fine. But your dream is done. You realized it. You were stars together on stage and you performed Starlight. And like, that is the worst stasis is once you've actually achieved the dream just to keep pursuing it because you don't know what else to do. I don't know what your read of it is, but that's definitely what mine is. They both have to like, acknowledge that they are that they are separate people that they are not two parts of a dyad yeah um that has to be together to function properly i mean i think it's there's there's definitely this is where we we get the reason why it's it's gone from an elevator to a train like in the series 
they get transported from the school to the stage on an elevator. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. elevator is very much A to B. You are just, you are going from here to your destination. And what gets brought up again and again is what happens if you go past your destination? Like curiosity of what's at the end of the line beyond where I thought I was going. And the this rocket feel charged yeah. train hurtling through a dust storm with the memories of her, her youth the promise the promise literally burned up in the afterburner in terms of like just metaphors just being thrown at you on screen just like her childhood selves standing behind a jet engine as it ignites and and <laughs> her is annihilated <laughs> yeah annihilates the the letter her childhood room where they first met the all these these moments annihilated mm-hmm. their connection used as fuel to pu- pu- to pu- send her forward past where she thought this ended and to continue on past that it's this moment of a- absolute f- freedom and i just absolutely love the soundtrack at that moment like it mm-hmm. it's uh, it both we'll cuts them in while we're talking. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it just absolutely soars. Sometimes music just gets you, and that that was one moment where. It was just absolute pitch perfect where it just completely carried me away with this this sort of all these conflicting emotions. Like, I can only, like, it's a, it's a really strange pull, but, like, if you've ever been at a, a funeral and someone tells a funny anecdote about a person who's passed and you remember the best of that person, like, this, this, this moment you will never have again, but which is still sweet and joyous... This somehow manages to capture something of that same same feeling, and that's that's remarkable because that is that's an emotion I can't even entirely put a name to. Right. It's yeah. It, there's this sort of like. I mean, I think that Banana's character, especially, is has this sort of proleptic nostalgia of just like knowing that something uh, that you'll miss something when it's gone, and so you already kind of are mourning it, and so. Again, like, we have an inversion in the movie of where, like, this thing is, is is annihilated, but the memory exists, and so it still feels real and still feels present. And reducing these parts of Karen's backstory um, from baggage that she's literally carrying around. There's so many scenes in the show and in the movie of her young self watching her older self perform. Um, like whenever we see the flashback to them watching their performance of Starlight, they're watching themselves perform Starlight. They never bother with who actually it was they saw at that theater that day. It's always them. And so to take that from this reality that that is always present with her into the sort of like sweet memory um, that it should be a motivation, but not a reality. Uh, not anymore. Their reality is what's happening now, what they have with them right now. And yeah, the music really captures it. I just love 
in the first half of the movie, they have this rearrangement of of Karen's victory theme from the from the TV series, uh, the song she sings when she when she finally uh, defeats uh, the last the last person. It's it's great. The music is great. I looked up who it is, and it's two people. They're very experienced, but I I see nothing that I would consider as like exceptional in terms of of musical orient uh, musical orchestration. Um, and maybe that's just because it's people who worked in the in the, the stage play, um, and we don't have them directly credited or or something. But but yes, this would be the point where Andy would be useful. Like Boucheraud has lots of fingers in pies when it comes to music and stuff. So I imagine mm-hmm. when they pick the people who are going to write the songs and uh, and score this stuff, that they pick from a, a very wide and deep pool of people who. Maybe you don't normally have a chance to stretch their legs as much as as uh, they do in this. I th- feel like this, this. Who knows if it actually was, but this, this feels like something where people are given a chance to just see where something goes to 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 push something and and see how far you can take it, both in terms of the visuals and the the yeah, songs and the music. <laughs> well. Do you want to talk about visuals real quick and then we can round out with best girls, um, top three yeah. best girls, and then we can call it there. <laughs> like the, actually, so something I miss from the series is we no longer get the ritualistic armoring for combat of Karen uh, with her <laughs> her little foot, with the little uh, autonomous sewing machines forge popping out an array of buttons and a uniform, fresh uniforms for her to wear each time. But... That uniform, and in particular the cloak and the the, the badge which attach it to it, um, that being a metaphor for taking on a role and f- for losing it or accepting it, and how that's played with in the 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 battle tender and and Claudine, and how you can be taking on multiple roles and have a role which is true to yourself and a role in the moment and all all these things and then this final sort of transcendent moment where you realize that the most important part about a role is that it can be cast off that it's something you you can step out of and leave behind and move on and that that no one takes the role from them. They just, it just falls off and, and they move on. And like yeah. that being that, that's just very, very beautiful. And then obviously uh, Tokyo Tower, <laughs> we can't yeah. get away from Tokyo Tower. The site, which she basically fetishizes, like we, we talk about how they annihilate all of the places associated with her promise. And yet, Tokyo Tower itself, which has always been like the metaphor which stands for the promise itself, like not just mm-hmm. it, it's 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 where they made the promise. And so in the series that the meta, the way they use that is uh, carries up on the, the sort of pillar uh, of the top star isolated from everyone else. And uh, Karen uses Tokyo Tower to bridge as a bridge. This the mm. promise is a bridge to lift her up to her. And in here. Tokyo Tower uh, is the initially the stage that their promise is the stage on which they have to work out this conflict about where they go next, and it's that moment when um, she stabs stabs her, and 
all the um, position zeros come flooding out is also the moment Tokyo Tower ruptures into... Something incredibly reminiscent of the end of Evangelion yeah. when the giant white uh, ray, like, her like head rips off and falls and the blood spouts out. It's... I feel it's... There, there are several end of Evangelion gestures, but I think that's one of the most obvious ones is just the, the sundering of the covenant, just like Shinji rejecting instrumentality. They have very similar, like, storyboarded out actions. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an impressive thing to just just the absolute flood of, of position zeros pouring out of uh, Karen's pierced chest as the tower, half of it to- topples and then strikes a massive position zero next to it which is almost feels like a troll at a certain point. <laughs> just like, yeah, I wonder if in the writers, like how many times can we put position zero in, in the last 10 minutes of this anime? Not Maybe. enough. And then, Not that's, enough at all. that's the answer. We're going to, we're going to turn Karen into a position zero and then she's going to be inside a position zero. And then also there's going to be a bunch of other position zeros inside her. It's just position zeros all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so what, any particular symbols you were interested in or just, just, struck I mean, you we've we've discussed a lot i i do like the train fight i think it is a it's um it reminds me uh if you've ever watched penguin drum the second yeah, obviously of like the big eco heart like the train imagery there but then again we have the transforming train um mm. that becomes a battlefield where another train pulls up alongside to pr- produce lights and at some point one of juna's arrows goes awry and knocks out some of the lights and we see like the glass flash past it it's not only the fact that we are existing in this space full of pregnant symbols, but also that these pregnant symbols are actual objects that can be that can be defaced, destroyed, can become obstacles. Um, it's not just trippy surrealism. Uh, it's also about like about forcing you to in, in interface with these objects because they're things that the characters have to interact with. Um, but I think, and I also like the trippy stuff. I love that mm-hmm. with the. Uh, Again, I've, the third time I'm going to bring up the the giant vegetable giraffe when it goes through the flash and stuff. They did that. They like that is exactly what everything, everywhere, all at once would do a year later. Like review Starlight, the movie got to it first of just flashing through all these different realities. There's one shot where he's just where his face is like a reflection of water and there's like two parallel desert landscapes. It's only a single frame. So you have to be going frame by frame through it, which is why I bring up everything everywhere all at once. (laughs) But it really is just like the way that it's not drawn vegetables. It's like real photographed. And I think like rotoscoped vegetables uh, or something like there's a, there's a media mixing that almost reminds me of like earlier, much more experimental Shinbo or like, burnt out from Evangelion, Hideki Anno going on there of really wanting to make you not see the giraffe as just an animated character on a cell. He really wants to push you to see this thing as, 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 as something bizarre, transgressive and intrusion into the, into the movie. And I think he, I think he does it excellently. And it, it makes, it makes us uneasy around the vegetables and all the tomatoes that people have to eat or how they explode. Like the movie begins with exploding a tomato, which I always thought was like, you can throw tomatoes at this if you want, but it's going to be weird. 
Um, and then like tomato bursts and Karen falls down dead. Is, is the yeah. thing there? Oh, it's great. The the thing which is uh, which revealed in one one of the interviews is that the, the tomatoes are supposed to be the the audience because um, mm. that's what the uh, giraffe the, g- the giraffe is the the obvious audience stand in. And so when we see him turn into this sustenance, uh, apparently originally in the script. They would just sat down and ate giraffe, like, and apparently that was just decided that this is just a bit like them um, chowing down on giraffe steak was a bit bit too much, and uh, they, <laughs> instead they went with him turning into a giant selection of uh, fruit, Archimbolo style, and them chowing down on tomatoes, which I I appreciate both because of my vegetarian uh, preferences and also just because a tomato is a far more enjoyable thing to squish. Um, and also, I talked at the beginning, like how knowing that the tomato is a sort of a symbol, symbolic of the audience means that the tomato juice, which is sprayed all over the girls <laughs> in the, the scene where we think it's blood and how it, someone, a particular one, comments on how sweet it tastes uh, adds a particular interesting take on on how she sees the uh, adoration of the audience. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's like there's it's always little things like that which sort of recontextualize it. But like yeah, that that those little mixed media moments and the the, the things like choosing to do like the the trains and the the trucks in uh, CGI and the the way that the sets themselves are constructed. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that there was this point in in the past where I think we we wondered about Goro Miyazaki being a, an ex um, architecture student who had en- somehow ended up in animation, and mm-hmm. the the interesting thing is Review Starlight's director wrote his thesis on Canterbury Cathedral and its architectural <laughs> history, and so this wants is... to get the broke from I guess. But yeah, Canterbury Cathedral's not broke, but. Six of one, half dozen of another. <laughs> you certainly get someone who has a love for the construction and presentation of scenery as more than just... I think that's the... Like, a big difference to this is these are not matte paintings. Like, matte... Pa- like, I... In some, like, Ghibli films, like, you can look at the matte paintings behind someone and they are wonders. But they are... They do still feel separate. They are still... Mm-hmm something which doesn't necessarily have much character or dynamism to us. The right. sets in View Starlight are constantly in motion, splitting and rearranging themselves, changing in from one th- scene to another. And I think like that's that's knowing that the person has a has an interest in architecture ex- makes that both explicable in some ways and charming like i like find out that detail make, makes me sort of smile a little that yeah of course you're a, you're a bit of an uh, an architecture nerd so you're just going to throw in as much as you can possibly do it yeah cool uh-huh, go for uh-huh. it okay well before we close it out who are your top three girls go oh, okay okay we can do this we can do this <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> okay. Nana, Mahiru, Tendo. Uh, and I <laughs> and I am Karoko, Juna, and probably Futaba? I don't know. I like the Futaba, Karo, Karoko, Karuko uh, arc so well. 
Like, I could just watch a spin-off show of them in Kyoto. <laughs> and notably, neither of, us, neither of us said Hikari or Karen, even still. <laughs> I mean, it's... So, for me, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that this, this does feel like a show by someone who saw Madoka and saw Madoka and Hanmura, Hanmura interact and were like, we could build a better show around this character interaction. But they are much more the spoke, the the axle rather than the wheel. I think in terms of of what makes the show goes, makes the show go. Like the like troubled dark girl and the 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 dopey happy one. There's not a lot of meat. I mean, there is meat there. They obviously have like a really important backstory. But I think it's the other people they fight and how these very vividly realized characters cast light on their dream. The shared dream of Hikari and, and mm. Karen that really that really makes it fly. Yeah. But. When you were talking about uh, Karen carrying around her baggage, I couldn't help but think about Hikari literally wheeling her her baggage yeah. around <laughs> with her for the whole movie, for, which I, I'm not entirely like. It's, it's quite funny seeing her go scene for scene dragging this big suitcase behind her. It's funny because she's characterized as a messy person because Mahiru has to teach her how to like wash and fold her clothes. So I wonder if she's one of those people who like lives out of a suitcase because it's easier <laughs> than like having a dresser and like doing doing laundry and stuff one would have to one would have to wonder but anyway let's go ahead and wrap it up there remember rate review and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice find us on facebook search for keyframes podcast while twitter's still around keyframe at keyframes pod i guess uh we'll see if it's around by the time that uh that uh this episode comes up uh, email us questions, keyframespodcast at gmail.com. And of course, tell a friend. But not just any friend. Tell your rival and make sure they realize <laughs> that this is a challenge. That if you don't step up to their level, that you're going to leave them forever and go to Don Don and never come <laughs> back. <sighs> My voice reaches you, th- reaches you. Through the magic of the internet, as spotlights shine upon me, I shine upon the world. 99th class, Ben Halliburton, signing off. Say goodbye, Duncan. Position zero. (laughs) (laughs) And And the curtain just tumbles down.